Hello, welcome to another episode of Military History Verbalized. I'm Justin, not MHV. I have appeared on the podcast before as a guest, and I have helped out with MHV mostly from behind the scenes. Uh, I will be hosting today, and joining me is Stephen. Uh, welcome, Stephen. Could you briefly lay out your uh, professional background before we move ahead? Sure. My professional background, I got my... Uh undergrad in computer science with a dual minor in Asian studies and mathematics. The Asian studies uh, included Japanese history, civilization, and language, as well as Chinese history and civilization. However, I did not pick up Chinese language. I also attended courses at the U.S. Naval War College. This was mostly because I was on a fast track as an officer in the Marine Corps through the platoon leadership class program. However, I did not receive a certificate nor a degree through that college. Uh, and today we will be doing a brief summary of battleship and battlecruiser design in the Imperial Japanese Navy from uh, Kawachi to 1945. And to start with, I guess, Stephen, do you want to get into kind of the state of uh, warship design and construction in the Japanese Navy in the immediate post-Russo-Japanese War period, uh, kind of leading up to the Kawachi class? Well, I'd have to actually go back just a few years before the war actually broke out, and the reason for that is there was already plans on what they wanted to have done right at that time. Uh, Admiral Togo took over Commandant Naval War College in, what was it, 1896? So a lot of his concepts and ideas before he even got to the Battle of Tsushima was already going through the college. And around that same time, one of his subordinates, it was a commander, uh, Sato Tetsutaru, was a he was an instructor of the Naval Staff College. I should mention, though, I haven't verified if this Naval Staff College and Naval War College are just the same thing. And translation has just through different articles have changed what that was being listed as. Mm-hmm. So around this time is when they started developing what they considered a defensive treaty plan, which to for most of those who don't know about this, Britain and Japan had entered into the Anglo-Japanese Treaty sometime in January of 1902 before the Russo-Japanese War. So a lot of their defense strategies that came right after the war were based on this alliance. So going into after the Russo-Japanese War, Japan had a program to rapidly modernize their navy, especially since Admiral Togo basically proved some concepts of long-range rifle fire guns over the, the uh, shorter-range intermediate fire, which most navies were doing at the time with their pre-dreadnoughts. Before the Kawachi was laid down, Japan actually had two designs for a first-class cruiser and battleship which has floated around on forums such as War Thunder and uh, World of Warships. I know during the closed beta and alpha, before it was actually put out in the open, there were these blueprints floating around. And they're a little unusual if anyone's ever seen them because they had their main turret superimposed, or as most people know, super firing, but they were on the same level. So instead of having one above the other, they had to elevate the guns to bring them forward. So you couldn't actually use all four guns forward. And it was just to keep all the weight on the center line. Oh, hmm. I actually have some pictures of that. If we ever want to send it over to them to post up, it's very, it's very unusual to look at, but they had already gotten the concept, like with the first class proposed cruiser of all six inch guns. 
they only had six 4.7s for uh, basically defense against torpedo boats. Everything else is all six inch. And for the first class battleship, it was all 12 inch guns. And so, how did this uh, progress toward the what we came to know as the uh, Kawachi class? The Kawachi ended up being, well, means to an end at this point because they had aspirations for other larger projects. They didn't have the industry yet. Okay. Uh, Japan pretty much came on the scene playing catch up for the longest time, which is why they went to uh, form a, a strong alliance with Britain. And one of the main reasons they, because both of them having a monarchy, they felt they had a, Japan wanted to model themselves as the Eastern British society, mm-hmm. which is why I actually make fun of uh, the last samurai movie a lot because they were like, <laughs> Oh, it's about America. I'm yeah. like, no, they were, Japan was all up Britain. They were like, America's a, <laughs> America's not exactly an ally. They're competition. Mm-hmm. And they weren't too fond of us of what we did to get them to open up trade. Yeah, that makes but, sense. <laughs> I mean, they didn't hate us. I mean, in a, in a sense, we basically woke them up to the realities of how much the outside world had changed. But they, they the British kind of came in with a more steady hand where we came in kind of ham-fisted. Mm-hmm. But... The Kawachi ended up being a development of them taking what they could build at the time and make it work. They still had to bring uh, import in guns. They didn't have the gun manufacturing for large uh, guns at that time yet, although they were uh, actually building the industry to do it. And the Kawachi ended up becoming a almost a botched job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan was literally bankrupt after the Russo War. So much so that the first time since the Boston War, they were selling off their relics to other nations to help buy to pay off their debts. Oh dear! They actually tore down like, during the Boston War. They actually tore down castles for raw materials to sell. To give you an idea, mm-hmm. and after the Boston War, they ended up doing a lot of recycling stuff like that, salvaged whatever they could to pay some of this debt off. Okay. So when they were building the Quachis, the reason why a lot of people ask, why do they have a mixed armament of different caliber size 12-inch guns? They wanted an entire battery of 12-inch by 45 caliber, but they literally could not afford it. Okay. They couldn't even scrap a penny. So they ended up just salvaging some of their older 12-inch by 40 calibers for their wing turrets, as well as everything from boilers to machinery from their older, some older pre-dreadnoughts to be able to build these newer vessels because okay. they had ambitious plans to do, like I said, the 1905 designs, but they couldn't afford it. Uh, that makes a lot of sense then. Is there any really noteworthy points about the Kawachi design in terms of their um, capabilities? They're kind of, my impression is that they're kind of all around pretty middling to not the best. They weren't really bad. It, the main issue they had was with having two sets of large caliber guns like that, it made it difficult to do follow-up shots because each one of those guns are going to have the same splash. So when you're trying to adjust fire for one set needing its own fire table and the other set having its other fire table, it made things complicated, especially since at this time, the concept of a central firing room was just being developed. So you had issues of communication between your different turret commanders or in this case captains and follow-up shots so 
they actually did have good optics on it. Around that time, Germany, I'm trying to remember the name of the, was it uh, Zeiss? Yeah, I, <laughs> I know yeah, what you're I, talking about. Yeah, I, I'm terrible either. at saying that, but they <laughs> actually had made the optics for the Japanese, and they're actually great uh, range-finding optics. So they actually had good optics in uh, controls. Problem was, when you have two separate types of calibers doing follow-up shots, it just hurt them on that. However, how Japan managed to have a, an entire homogeneous battery of 12 inch by 45s, it would have outclassed the Dreadnoughts. I guess moving on uh, in the timeline, one of the most famous classes that uh, operated with the Imperial Japanese Navy was the Kongo class, uh, which was British designed, of course, but um, one thing that's quite interesting around the design of the Congo class is that along with the ships themselves, uh, there was a lot of knowledge and tech transfer between the British and the Japanese. And I'm wondering if you can uh, elaborate on that and, you know, Japanese involvement in the design process, uh, etc. Thanks in part to the Anglo-Japanese alliance, Japan and Great Britain shared a lot of knowledge. Enough so that during the Battle of Tsushima, there were British observers on Japanese ships recording what was going on. So the Japanese, because the vast majority of their officers were trained and schooled in Great Britain, they had developed a very, honestly, I generally call it a marriage because that's really how close they were for a while. So thanks in part to this close leadership, they had unabated access to Vickers. Uh, Vickers Armstrong basically gave them free reign to go through, and they actually got to see ships and design and construction that the British would not allow others to see. They saw the development of the Invincible class going into the Lion. They had access to all of this. And because of this, what Japan wanted, as at the time, especially since Admiral Fisher's grand delusion of the... uh, Battlecruiser concept. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad idea what he was going for. A ship that would outclass any armored cruiser. Anything it couldn't outfight, it can outrun. Mm-hmm. The concept of how it was used was poorly uh, implemented, though. But Japan saw this idea as something great for them because they had always, especially with previous battles, speed was key to them. The reason why they overran the Russian battle lines was that they actually were able to cross their teeth while boxing them in. So the, the idea of having a large ship with high-speed, hard-hitting guns so allow them to outmaneuver an enemy force very much appealed to them. So what Japan wanted was they wanted something like what was going to develop with the Lion class, but they wanted it to be faster if possible with bigger guns. Armor wasn't... And this is an issue a lot of people ask, why was the armor so thin on most of these battlecruisers? The technological advancement from, let's see, uh, they were first going through the development of the Congo sometime in 1910, 1911, because they kept changing its design. So from, from 1910 to 1919, shell design development had taken almost a light speed course because we went from no cap to a soft cap to an armor piercing cap to a ballistic cap in that short of a period of time. So the ability for these large caliber guns to punch armor 
and do substantial damage had rapidly grown. So the concept of being able to just having like eight inches of armor be protective enough with, especially with, uh, with Krupp and Vickers cemented, being able to resist up to 12 inch gunfire at a range of about uh, 10 kilometers was completely now unable to stop even uh, nine inch gunfire with these new shells. Of, I mean, a lot of people who haven't seen it, you can actually see where they uh, did combats or battle test or just a uh, shot test on the SMS Biden. And it just, these new shells just shredded that ship. It just goes to show how much we had advanced in that atmosphere of, I mean, it's, it's nothing new. I mean, throughout history, you develop a defense and then someone develops a weapon to defeat that defense and then you keep growing. I mean, hell, look at World War II. Just tank development was ridiculous for just a, a, what, like a six-year period. Yeah. So Japan, what they had designed it for was a 1912 concept. But by 1920, they were already seeing that it was no longer viable. But between that period, the idea of a fast, hard-hitting ship that could cut off not only enemy fleets, but smaller vessels such as cruisers and or supply ships and troop transports, which is a big thing for them, they're an island nation, was very much appeasing. Yeah, and from my on, understanding, actually, um, the Japanese adopted the battle cru cruiser concept with more gusto than the British or something like that. Because, I mean, when you look at the ratios of the construction, the famous 8-8 fleet concept, that's a one-to-one -one ratio between battle cruisers and battleships. And a lot of people even argue that it was more 12 to 4 because four of those battleships ended up being fast battleships. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, to them, speed was a huge point. And a lot of it was that because of the whole decisive battle concept, they wanted to be able to thin down an enemy fleet and then hit them hard and fast and get out before they took substantial damage. The concept, great on paper, but it only works if your enemy falls for that plan. And mm -hmm. as seen in World War II, the U.S. didn't fall for that plan. And the, the reason why this is uh, a thing, I was going back to the two names I said earlier, Seto, uh, Tatar, along with Admiral Togo, they had to go along a line of, it was a secret document that came out in April of 1907 that was found. They, they listed who their most potential enemy would be over a period of time. Number one on that list was Russia because the Russo war had ended. They knew at some point Russia would attempt to retaliate. Now they were in alliance with Britain. So they knew any, if there was, well, their alliance uh, spec, uh, speculated that Britain could not get involved. If it was a one power, one power. That's why Britain directly didn't send ships to support the Japanese. But should Russia call in their ally at the time, which was France, Britain would get involved, and France didn't want anything to do with Britain, hence why they never got involved. But the next two potential enemies they listed was the United States and France. There's a reason for this. Russia was allied with France. France had good ties with the U.S. They knew that even though the U.S. and Britain, we had leveled off problems between us, but history knows that up until at least World War II, we had always seen Britain as a potential enemy. Uh, 
let's see, Plan Orange and Red, we listed them as a primary enemy along with Japan as our ally. It's just something that always in the back of our minds for the longest time. And a lot of people, I tell them, the, the, the main monarch who really did something about that uh, was King George. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II was really big on making sure ties with the U.S. stayed good. In all honesty, I, I give her a lot of credit for the fact that she might be a monarch of another nation, but she always, in a, in a, in a funny sense, tried, I always say she looks like a mother to any and all of the colonies who broke off. Even if you know we, we split off more than 250 years ago, you'll notice even today a lot of, a lot of people here look up to her. So that's, that relationship really didn't come about in, for a long time. In the past, there was always a chance, and the Japanese very much knew this. So they wanted to be on the best terms possible with Britain, but they knew they needed a fast fleet to deal with the U.S. because we very much had, they knew with it because they had also sent to people to, uh, Navy went to Britain. A lot of the Imperial Japanese army went to the U.S. Mm-hmm. as well as Germany. And that's because we had a lot of ground fighting and experience, there, especially with the Mexican-American War, our Civil War, then we had the Spanish War. So we had a lot of ground fighting experience that at the time Britain had a lot more naval experience. But through all of this, they knew our industrial capacity far outstripped their own. And that's where the concepts of the size of battle more or less uh, proclamated into their minds. I mean, yes, Admiral Mahan, it was his idea and he published the book and it went across the world. And there were many other fleet strategists that basically was like, no, that's a terrible idea. You're basically throwing your eggs in one basket. But at that time, it really had been proven. But with the Battle of Tsushima to the Japanese, it was proven. Because in one battle, they completely destroyed the Russian Navy. Moving on from the Congo class, although related, is the uh, Fuso class, which, to my knowledge, was heavily influenced by the tech transfer and design of the preceding Congo class. Um, And apparently it was quite troubled, and I'm wondering if you can um, elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, both the Congo, I know later we'll talk about the Issei, both of them had quite a few problems. Uh, The biggest issue with the Fuso class was that around the same time period, many nations, and it was all of us, like Britain to the U.S., we had this concept of throwing, we got rid of the wing turrets, we just threw them right midships. Uh-huh. And the second you do that, you now have to split your magazine space between your boiler rooms and your machinery space. Uh-huh. Now, the Congo class already did this with this number three turrets. That's because it needed enough space to place these large turbines for the speed. So it already had started this habit, but it wasn't just the Japanese. The British had done this. Uh, Germany did this. Actually, everyone except for France really had done it. Uh, Italy did too. And it was really just everyone trying to put as many guns as possible on one frame. Now, there was a design that Vickers submitted to the Japanese that looked a lot like the U.S. Nevada class. It had two three-gun turrets. Or excuse me, it had uh, four, not Nevada class. I'll have to scratch that for a moment. It looked more like the preceding Pennsylvania classes and, and onward, 
because it had four three-gun turrets. So instead of using two-gun turrets like the Congo class, they put three-gun turrets so that you could actually separate these spaces better. Issue with Japan was they had just started producing their own armaments and turrets going into the Hiei uh, vessel of the Congo class. The U.S. at the time, we had the industrial capacity to build ships doing a two-gun, three-gun turret design. But much like uh, Great Britain and Japan, they really couldn't. I mean, Britain actually probably could because they had uh, Vickers along with a few other shipbuilding corporations. But Japan really had just gotten Korea Naval Yard and one other private yard able to produce such these vessels. So they wanted to keep as many items such as machinery, armament, turrets to be homogenous between classes. That way, if battle damage were to occur, they could easily repair these with basically one production line. So you see the same turret design in the, I mean, it's exactly the same turret. All they did was change the armor on it. And they rearranged a couple small things, such as the ammo and, or sorry, the shell and powder hoist, rearranged the design a little bit. Well, besides that, the turrets were almost identical. So they wanted to keep those same two-gun turrets, but to do that, they now need to lengthen the vessel. They then had to make space for the machinery between the number four turret, number five turret, and the boilers. So basically, they had to add in a, a, a metric ton. Per, like I, I'm actually under exaggerating. I think it's something close to like 170 tons of insulation that would be applied in these machinery uh, space between the magazines to keep the magazines cold <laughs> oh. because of where these turrets were located. And at this time, the Battle of Jetland had not occurred to prove how bad of an idea it was to have midships turrets like this. Going into... Uh, since we were just talking about the Ize a little bit, Ize's design was slightly different because they saw that issue and were like, okay, so how about we just make three sets of superimposing turrets and then we're going to put machinery all in one area? The irony in this is the Ize class was less livable than the Fuso class. Because of <laughs> really? This. Yes, like the crews like, said it was unbearable. Oh. They had less crew space, they were more cramped. Because a lot of the midship area that involved crew space on the upper deck was cut out for the way they had designed those superimposing turrets for the metal mm. fire arc. So they basically bunched everyone in towards the bridge section or the aft bridge area, and this whole midship section was cut out. So the crews complained of ventilation issues. Uh, illness became a problem, such as tuberculosis. It was really bad. Uh, pneumonia especially in the winter months so basically upper respiratory infections were huge along with these a class and it to my knowledge had been a problem forever and very it's just something that's not really spoken about because it's just it's one of those things that of uh, those of you who have done engineering great on paper terrible in concepts <laughs> there was they did not plan at all what would happen if they did this and to be honest there's been a lot of jokes about how Japan really didn't care about the crew space whatsoever. They were like, here's your hammock. You're basically like 
you've got a foot of space above your head and below you, and that's just your space. Moving on to my favorite class, uh, the Nagato class. Um, there's a lot to discuss, really. Um, to my knowledge, this was the first class that used Japanese-designed guns, uh, the 41-centimeter, uh, 45, I think? Yes. Um, there's changes to the armor scheme, the layout of the guns. Um, some people claim these were inspired by the Queen Elizabeths. I'm not sure what uh, how much truth is in that. I would consider them fast battleships because they were pretty quick for the time. So all sorts of stuff to get into. I have to double check. Uh, to my knowledge, the Queen Elizabeth class was in concept or around the same time Japan was looking into design. Well, let's see, Hirago was putting in Nagato. Oh yeah, it actually would be around the same time because uh, the original concept for the Queen Elizabeth was coming as an improved HMS Tiger. So that was like, what, 1912, 1913? Hmm. Around the time Hirago was coming about with uh, Nagato. Nagato's design was the concept of quality over quantity because they knew they just they weren't going to outbuild anybody mm -hmm. and they knew that they really just needed something that could take a true beating and dish out as well because as i said you know previously the fuso and Issei were already showing their shortcomings and with what was going on with between britain and and Germany in World War One, they were already watching how the battles were unfolding. And they've basically came to the concept that a battle line, because the Fusos and Isis could not keep up with the Congo class, they wanted a battleship that could. And this is where a lot of people do consider the Nagato the first fast battleship, because it was designed to attempt to keep up with the Congos. Because at this time, the Congos weren't as fast as they were in World War II. Uh, actually, give me just one moment. I'll actually tell you exactly how fast they were because I've got their stats right here. 27? Right? I believe I've, uh, I'll actually tell you each one had a different uh, speed test. Uh... I actually got them pulled up. Uh, at the time they were built, a few of them hit, uh, one of them hit 27 and a half knots. That was, if, I'm, if I saw this right, that was Haruna. He hit 27.1 knots. Uh, Congo and Kirishima were both are a little under 27. Mm -hmm. So they aimed for 27 and a half, but they got, or so they aimed for 27. They got some that were up there, but it's just one of those things where I mean, a lot of people always ask, you know, in design, how is it that you'll design, you know, all these ships exactly the same and they don't have the same speed? And I've explained to people, you can change so much on a ship just by. The way the rivets are formed to hydrostatics, uh, it so much can go in. Instead, at that time, we didn't even really understand yet. Mm -hmm. So much knowledge came out of uh, ship design later on that just added in so much more uh, knowledge on why we had so much extra drag on vessels. Everything from uh, oh god, rudder design to uh, screw cavitation, just a lot of stuff we hadn't learned yet. But Around this time, they were like, okay, so let's see if we can't produce a battleship that could keep up with these, which, not all bad concept. Because mind you, the Queen Elizabeth class were supposed to be 
faster than the preceding class. Well, they wanted an extra two knots, which was supposed to put them at 25 knots. It did not get 25 knots, though. Um, it got 24, and for the amount of cost that it cost the Admiralty in Britain, they saw it as a huge hit because I believe there was something like 23% more expensive overall than the preceding class per ship. And that was a hard hit. Japan oversaw the cost is worthwhile because they're going to have fewer vessels. They need something to stay with their battle line. Now, something of note that should come about is that Mutsu, when it was being laid down, it was about 38% complete. Japan had just gotten the data on how the Battle of Jutland went, and Hiraga immediately requested uh, a stop of production on the Nagato class. Now, Nagato was too far along to do this. I believe it was like 71% complete. So they had it completed as is. And his immediate knowledge was that he wanted to rearrange the ship to make it better protected versus the things that had come about during Jutland. So what do you want to do with Mutsu, which was really neat? He found a way to do this at the same tonnage. I was going to increase about 800, uh, 800 tons to the vessel. Keep the same speed. Rearrange the machinery space with newer, more efficient boilers and machinery, which was some, I think it was like 1,200 tons lighter. And add an additional turret, so it would be five turrets. Now, this was actually later on carried on to the Tosa class, but he had already envisioned with the Mutsu that same design of three turrets aft and two turrets fore. Oh, interesting. On the same tonnage as Nagato. Hmm. And the uh, Japanese diet basically asked, how much is this going to cost us? <laughs> and where he showed them the projection plan, they were like, no, we can't afford that. We need to finish this as is. That's, I think it was going to add something like, uh, at the time, like four and a half million. Uh, but at the time, like care for inflation will be something today of closer to the ballpark of about $600 million. And they're like, no, <laughs> we, we've already got all this. Cause, because most people understand uh, for ship armor, because he completely scrapped the armor design. He was, he was oh. going out, 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 to change the outline to 50 degrees outboard. He, gave, uh, he changed the, the deck layout, all of this. But most people don't know is when you produce ship armor like this, they're weathered. So after they go through the cement, uh, either the hardening cementing process, they're left to weather to see if cracks form. And they make more plates than are needed for the vessel. That way, if those that fail the quality check, they can then just be either reprocessed or uh, scrapped and then reformed. So that means everything they had already pre-built for production would have to be scrapped and started over. And that's where us, all these expenses came from. They were just like, no, we're not doing that. But Japan did end up getting... Nagato launched and in action before the U.S. got our uh, first 16-inch gun vessel launched. So Japan was really big on trying to be the first on things. Like they were the mm -hmm. first getting the 14-inch guns out, although the U.S. was with the New York and Texas almost the same time. And then yet again, with Nagato versus uh, Colorado all the time, they were called the West Virginia class because different nations went off of who launched what first. 
So there was already a lot of head smashing between the U.S. and Japan at this time. Mm-hmm. And Britain was taking notice of this, too, because it, it kind of worried them. They're like, OK, now we now we've got to compete with Germany and the U.S., even though U.S. are ally right now. It's just it's just funny when you think about it. <laughs> Um, is there anything you can elaborate on regarding the guns? The biggest thing I can elaborate on, this is something that was uh, very unique for them. So in all previous designs, they, they kept the same turret design, but the thing they changed was the shell and powder hoist to do something that they hadn't done. So in all other, all older, or at least all the way up to that point, British design and also older Japanese design, the powder hoist was done in two stages. Two, two bags dropped, rammed it in. Next two bags dropped, rammed it in. Uh-huh. This added time on a reload. So what they envisioned doing with the Nagato was you ram the shell home. All four powder charts came out at one time, rammed it home to save time on this uh, reload process. I believe until even to this day on a, on a zero degree, or I should say at loading angle, Nagato still holds the record of the fastest gun cycle because of this. Oh. I'm trying to find what exactly it was. It was something ridiculous. Like on a, I think it was like 17 seconds. It was unheard of at that time. Now, mind you, at a loading angle, that's not a very long range shot. Yeah. And you're not going to be able to do that in a combat situation unless you're doing a shore bombardment that you're already zeroed in on. And the reason for this, you got to do follow-up shots for them maneuvering and everything like that. So more a lot of people ask, well, how fast could they fire? That don't really mean much in a combat situation on ship mm-hmm. on ship because when something's maneuvering, you got to readjust and then, yeah. Yeah, that's one thing um, because, you know, you get these war by spreadsheet people talking about like theoretical maximum firing rates. And it's like, well... In reality, when you're looking at these battles and you're like averaging shells fired per barrel, the rate of fire is usually well below the theoretical maximum because there's a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah. Oh, here it is. It was 21 and a half seconds that they actually achieved in testing. Oh, okay. So, and that was at a loading angle of three degrees. Mm -hmm. So they were literally able to pump out it. And this is uh, sustained. They actually did it for, I think it was like 60 rounds. Oh, wow. So it was actually sustained at about an average of 21 and a half seconds, hmm. which when the U.S., uh, we went into our technical mission to Japan when they surrendered World War II, that was actually surprising to us because we had always listed their rate of fire in the Colorados, which is about, I think it was like 41 seconds. But the fact that we were achieved that at, low, at a low elevation was shocking. And we found because they come with the concept of a single uh, ram on all the powder, which was for a 1914 design was pretty visionary. So yeah, that's really interesting. Japan actually already the thing I always tell people about Japan was that they had great vision on a lot of things, but they were hampered by their industry and they're also hampered by tradition. Japan was really bad about letting their tradition uh, supersede certain modern concepts because they always had people who didn't allow the tradition to hamper them, but it's hard to get that through people's heads. And I make a joke about it being what our political situation is in the U S right now. This is nothing new. It, it happens in history all the time of one group 
trying to explain to another group, another group going, no, no, I, I don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And it happens in military. It happens in politics. It happens everywhere. So take, take that with a grain of salt when it comes to a lot of what happened with Japan, because there were so many things that many people in lower ranks, uh, even up in, to the admiralty were making comments that should be changed that there was just so much push and pull on, but the Nagato was one that Haraga managed to push pretty quickly and was immediately accepted, which was good for Japan because they really needed something that was better than what the Fuso and AC. I mean, if we want to be completely honest, they did nothing really their entire, entire careers besides Mm -hmm. get sunk. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm not sad to say. I mean, they really were never like. I mean, I mean, I mean, we give the uh, the Yamatos crap because they basically were just floating hotels, mm-hmm. and the Congos were like, "Well, I guess we're doing all the work." Thanks, guys. <laughs> uh, but like, the, because Nagato was a flagship for the longest time before the, the Yamatos came out. The same in Mutsu ended up having the uh, import detonation. They like. Nagato ended up how to do some leg stretches with the uh, the Congo class because Issei and, and uh, Fusos couldn't really do a lot until they got modernized. Like the Fuso modernization actually made them do something that was extremely rare. That modernization was their boiler rooms. Some where they they added blisters like they did for a lot of their ships, yeah. and they did this for Nagatos as well um, when they modernized them. To increase their fuel endurance, but the uh, but Fuso as well as uh, sister ship got an endurance range that was unheard of in, in Japan. I think it was something like fifteen hundred, I'm just saying, fifteen thousand nautical miles hmm. of an endurance range. No other capital ship had close to that at the time. So because of this, it made them good vessels for uh, long range support and without refuel. Mm-hmm. But they mostly were kept in the rear. And they even with that, they didn't do a whole lot. Yeah. It was just one of those things that you kind of go, but why? Yeah, like those uh, Issei-CV hybrid abominations. That was just them going, oh, God, we've, we've lost too many carriers. What do we do? Well, we got these two we're not really doing anything with. Let's do something with those. Okay. I mean, they actually had plans to fully convert the vessel yeah. into it. But it's just the industry at that point had been bombed out from firebomb. You're like, well... It's the best we got, guys. We're like, we're doomed. <laughs> Truth right. be told, they, they actually, uh, starting in 1944, quite a few of them were, were asking for them to come to terms on surrender. Of, and there's a, had, had Yamamoto not been killed, there's a chance he might have requested it to the emperor. Hmm. But, because he was actually very logical on his decisions i mean yes some of them weren't but he wasn't he was not a stupid person i mm-hmm. mean if you can't he came from the concept of the art of war of you know don't fight a losing battle if you know you're losing come to terms but here goes back to the tradition part we don't surrender and it's like we're losing bad so what do we do all right moving forward to the designs that were ultimately cancelled as a result of the Washington Naval Treaty. Uh, we won't get into the Washington Naval Treaty specifically too much because that's a whole other can of that, worms. That's, that's like a three-hour podcast. On yeah. <laughs> um, 
But so for people that don't know, I'm referring to Tosa, which was a uh, battleship design, Amagi, a uh, battle cruiser, Key, a fast battleship, and then number 13. Uh, and these designs all were effectively killed by uh, the Washington Naval Treaty. Yeah, going into that, the only thing else in the Washington Naval Treaty is it probably saved all of our nations from going bankrupt. However, uh, that stock market crash probably just uh, reaffirmed that we had some problems already before that. But Tosa was basically going what I said about Mutsu, was his taking the concept of, off the top of my head, the A126 design, if I'm correct. But when he went into the uh, Tosa design, basically he lengthened the ship uh, to give it a little more speed, uh, also specifically some more armor. And going into that concept, they already knew that the Congos were already outclassed. They, they just knew it. They saw what happened at Jutland. They were like, we, we need to replace these. So the Amagis and the Keys, once they were completed, the Congos were to be scrapped. Number 13 was to be the next set of battleships. And specifically, what was supposed to happen is that the four number 13s, key Amagis were to be the basically the, the eight of the battlecruiser line, so to speak. Number 13s, Tosa and Nagato and Mutsu were to be the battleship line. However, number 13 speed would actually most likely meant that they would pretty much sit in the battlecruiser line, hence the comment of the 412 instead of the 88, oh. as I said previously. And that's just because number 13s were supposed to push 30 knots. Mm -hmm. And the Gatos weren't anywhere near that. They were, I think, 26 and a half at best. So, mm -hmm. so going into this, the Tosas went for better armor, good armament, at a little more economical weight area. Amagis decided to get rid of some of the armor. Still considered a better armor layout than the Congos because they were the armor was uh, inclined outboard to better resist uh, flat range fire and uh, plunging fire. Also, around this time, the Japanese already come to the concept of plunging shell fire, so they began began uh, designing their decks to resist this. The key class came in to further improve upon that, giving better belt and deck armor, more to back to more what the Tosa was and a little better. And then the number 13, they basically crunked the knob all the way up to 11. Uh, I mean, so many naval historians at the time said the number 13 would have outclassed everything everyone was designing at the time because the Japanese had already come in the concept of the true fast battleship and its true core. Mm -hmm. It had great armor, great firepower, Great speed. It actually, the design was supposed to give a good maneuverability at high speed. It was all around a probably the best design Japan had come out with for a very long time. Interesting. Oh, I, I'll just mention for those that don't know, the number thirteen actually had—I um, can't remember what the exact size was—but around eighteen inch. It was. Uh, it was actually the same forty-six centimeters. We actually found in the archives the actual turrets and everything for it. Because it had been misquoted to be a, the uh, Imperial Center of 18 inches, and there's also been some misstate out there how heavy the shells were going to be. And part of that came from the fact that the British were designing, it was like a 1,500 kilo 18-inch shell, 
And what ended up happening is then they designed a lighter shell because with those who followed the Nelson, for whatever reason, they went with the concept of a lighter, high-velocity shell over a heavier, lower-velocity shell and found, I don't know how they, they came to this data on it being you know better for plunging and flat fire because just 10 years later, they're like, well, that was wrong. Uh, but the Japanese actually had designed two shells for it. One was a lighter shell than what was used in Yamato, somewhere around the ballpark of 1,300 kilograms, and a much heavier was some something like like 1,600, which was ridiculous. But it actually was, and here's the other part that we all had wrong. We all listed it as uh, 45 calibers. It was a 50 caliber barrel, so oh. it was a longer barrel than the Yamatos. Yep. It was supposed to have a much higher muzzle velocity too, somewhere like uh, 900 meters a second. Hmm. So really high velocity, which a lot of us were kind of going, um, that that's just I don't know how they're going to have achieved that because the Italians basically proved that was great on paper, bad in concept. So they probably would have ended up doing what the Italian Navy did and just basically drop that muzzle velocity. The you know bit better keep the shell spread and dispersion as well as barrel wear down mm-hmm. because that heavy projectile, that speed, that would have worn those liners down real fast. Yeah. But yeah, the number 13s are probably my favorite design just because, I, I don't know, it, it, to me it was like a really big Nagato that did everything that, that Nagato wanted to be. There was it's just faster. something about the look at them too. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty cool looking on... Uh line drawings oh yeah and like for those of you who haven't seen it uh he had already des- started designing uh before the ubari was uh cruiser was designed the swept back funnel system uh f- the bridge structure had been redesigned to have a lower solid bridge it still had the mass structure but he had already come with the concept of a high mast with the rangefinder way above the line of uh, Waterline to get really good long range fire. There was just so many different things that were added in. The downside was to the ship, and something that I think Japan was about to figure out. They at the, before they were about to lay them down, they had zero, I mean zero, docks that could actually hold the ship because the ship was so long. It was 260 meters. For those who don't know, the Yamato was about 14 meters shorter than that. This was a very long ship, and that 260 meters is just. The length between perpendiculars. This overall length is 274 and a half. This thing was huge. However, I've noticed it was miscorded how much was uh, how much displacement was going to be. Somewhere at like four displacement was going to be somewhere close to 63,000 uh, tons. So it was going to be a heavy ship too. That's a big girl. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. And she was supposed to hit 30 knots. <laughs> well, moving forward. We could maybe do just some general marks about design from, you know, through the battleship building holiday and all the way up to A140, which is the design that would lead or eventually become Yamato class. Yeah. The funny thing is, because of the capital ship holiday, some of the most oddball designs came about because of the tonnage limitation for the replacements on the Congos. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Battleship X design looks like something out of a 50s sci-fi movie. Uh, every time I look at it, I kind of get an eye twitch. I'm like, what happened? 
I, I mean, you just kind of got to give them credit. They're trying to find some way to make this work because this is okay. So before those of you who don't know, before the whole issue of limitation of tonnage, because they limited tonnage on cruisers, on capital ships, all of these ships had very little problems when it came to uh, stability and things such thereas. Once they started putting this tonnage limit, Japan lost their mind because they were already upset that they didn't get to have the same tonnage because the only thing they were limited to in the past was their industrial capacity. There was no limit on how many ships they could have. They just knew they couldn't afford them. And all of a sudden, this mindset kicked in of, oh, we can only have this many ships. Well, it's got to be better in every way than everyone else's. So we got to have this and, and this and, and that on it. And the designers are just sitting there going, please stop. Like, I can't fit all this on this on this ship. I literally can't. They're like, make it happen. I mean, that's literally what the, 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 the naval staff was telling them. The general naval board was like, you just, just go into the cruiser for a moment. The Mogami was like the epitome of put everything you can, including the extra kitchen sink, and make it work. And the thing cracked when they fired the guns because they put way too much on this hull. And they were like, Okay, we're just the designers are like we can't do this. It's just not going to work. But they basically were forced in a possible situation. Well, the same was happened with the, the capital ship holiday, with the with the X design and all these other designs. It just they were trying to shove so much on this thirty five thousand ton limit that it was ridiculous. And it wasn't just them. If you like, the U.S. was like really, really pushed the limit with the, the North Carolina class was being designed. Like they were like, we got to make this work. I don't care what you got to use. We don't care if that bridge can be out of complete aluminum. We got to make this. I mean, it just got ridiculous. The U.S., however, got had one thing going for them more than uh, Germany did a little bit too, and that's because the U.S. had such a large industry, even during the Depression, of a lot of government works were put into place uh, from bridges, stuff like that. Welding had been, because it takes many years for you to become, an, an, a, you know, go from an apprentice to a German welder. A lot of issues with the Japanese holiday with their welds not working very well is that a lot of these welders didn't have the experience for this yet. Personal experience, because I actually apprenticed as a blacksmith as a kid between uh, for five years, and it's also including me doing MIG, ARC, and t uh, TIG welding. It takes years to do proper welds, mm -hmm. like to do really good-looking welds that, you know, you don't warp the piece of, you know, you know, because I can go from too much, not enough voltage, you're not running the feed properly, just all kind of things can go wrong. And it takes years to develop this. A lot of these guys, because Japan didn't really do a lot of crossover, a lot of the welders that came in shipbuilding in the U.S. when the industry picked up did welding in other areas from buildings to bridges to cars like there was a little bit of welding with the cars starting for a little bit just to uh save on production time because they can prefab certain parts and increase the time that you can actually i'm sorry decrease the time on a production line so welding was becoming a big thing for that but japan was slow to pick up on this because japan besides south america and germany out of all the developed nations, Japan took the stock market crash probably the hardest. They were not quite ready for what was going to happen. They, their industry shut down. A lot of people who had experience fell out of industry. Uh, when industry came back online in certain areas, they just it, 
it, it hurt them so much. And it's one of the main reasons why going to World War II, they were just not at all prepared for what needed to be done. And it's also one with their designs too, because you look at most of these signs like the X class and some of the other Congo preliminaries and other designs for replacements, they were relying so much on welding that most likely they would have they would have failed. Like they would have been like the Mogami of the battleships. Mm. And there's a lot of problems with that. Now, there were concepts that came out of that that went into the A140s that were good. Um, one of the biggest ones was the complete design change of the turrets. Now, no one's really sure if it was completely in-house or if they got some of these ideas from Britain, also come up with ideas from the U.S. Because the U.S. at the time, if you look at the way we were designing our new turrets, had the shell hoist and the powder hoist separated. Uh, Britain did it with the, the Nelsons and some others. These were the first designs that started to incorporate this. That's why if you look at the Yamato's turret design, it looked nothing like the previous classes. And that's because they moved away from having a single hoist carrying the shell and powder to having separate hoists. Also at this time, Japan looked into having a shell magazine within a turret instead of the previous ones. The shells magazine were in a space outside of the turret ring so the yamato brought that in it's not a hundred percent sure if the x-class did this though we know of the separate hoist but some of the documents pertaining to it were destroyed and completely lost and most of the ones we have we have cutaways of frames of their engineering space and of the actual hull lines and, and things of this nature but going through Karag's archives, some of the things, it hasn't been located yet. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that cells have been scanned. It's just been slowly being put on there that might find this, or it could even be just, you know, mis mislabeled, misdocumented somewhere in the archive. But we don't know if they actually were planning on putting the shell space within the turret. And I guess moving forward to the, you know, the, obviously the most famous and probably one of the most discussed um, Japanese battleship designs that ended up as real ships, uh, the A-140 design, and then the resulting Yamato class. Uh, there's tons we can talk about. There's actually some really good books, uh, particularly one really good book in English, if people are more interested. But we actually have a pretty reasonable record. Yeah, if you want a good book, Anatomy of a Ship by uh, Janet Skulski. Uh, I'm terrible at that last name. Uh, the Battleship Yamato. He did a lot of research. I actually had a chance to talk to him one time. Really good guy. He's probably uh, one of the best people to talk to about it. It's just funny to notice this Polish you know, model maker just because he wanted a, the most accurate model he could for the Yamato that he went through all this research. And some of his stuff was so on point that they actually went to him for the model that. that that uh, for the uh, the one that's in the museum in Japan, so that's to give people an idea how much research he did into this, uh, going through photographs and such as that. But yeah, I, I mean, going down the line of all the A140s, I mean, God, let's see, uh, starting from like 1935 uh, in March to July of 36. Oh God, let's see, they went through going through the alphabet A. Kilo. There's one from A to, A, to, A to K in designs. Not to mention just all the numbers in between. Like, so we have the B1, B2, the, you know, the, the G0, the, the F3, 4, and 5. It's just 
the Juliet one through six. I mean, there's just so many different designs. Concepts. It was just ridiculous. Like, I don't even know of anyone who's actually managed to map out all of them. And it's because it wasn't just Hiraga, uh, Fujimoto and like three others were involved. Just so many concepts came in because you had designs that looked like the Nagato, uh, in a sense with, you know, uh, the four twin turrets, like the number 13, then all of it's like the Nelson type with all three turrets forward. And like if you play World of Warships, the Izumo type where the, the third turret is aft. They also have the one that was the third turret forward is where they're all three uh, superimposed forward from the bridge. And then they had the concept of the first time ever of split machinery of a diesel and steam propulsion for better endurance. That fell through because they were having issues with certain diesel engines. I mean, just so many things came through at this point. It's, I really recommend just reading the book because I could spend 45 minutes alone just on how much they literally were trying out with the Yamatos. But what ended up happening with A140s, they finally just came to terms that they're going to have to go with what they know works. This means the new experimental high-pressure boilers were thrown out the window because they, you know, they at this time they had seen what were, issues were coming up because they actually had ordered a few from Germany to test. Germany was having issues testing as well. Of uh, some of their boilers were up to like 600 psi and breaking down. Japan was looking for an alternative. So they ended up just going with the standards of intermediary pressure boilers, which were not as efficient. They gave up on the diesel engines. They had problems with that. So overall, they were like, okay, we're just going to go with what we know works. It's going to be a gas hog. We're just, oh, well, we don't have a choice. Uh, the biggest reason for that was their biggest fear. Because the deck was so integrated to the hull's integrity, they had fears if something went wrong with the diesels, how they would get them out and replace them because they pretty much had to strip a good portion of the ship down to get them out. Oh. And this was a huge problem. Uh, although part of me is like, well, what do you do if you get your boilers knocked out and you got to go in repairs because you're going to strip that deck up anyways? I mean, well, I'm honestly, I literally thought about that when I was reading that issue and I was like, really? Because you're telling me that if you get some substantial battle damage, but mind you, at this time, they truly believed Yamato was going to be nearly impervious to any enemy ship at the time. So they weren't, I called Yamato the Titanic of the battleship world. Oh, by the way, for those who don't know, I've, I've been, I was obsessed with the Titanic since third grade. So I have a tendency to kind of compare to the Titanic a lot because of that. But yeah, it, it really just was like, they're like, okay, it's going to have, you know, I swear to God, it's like Trump's to go have the best deck armor, the best belt, the best guns. <laughs> it could be unstoppable. It makes Japan great again. I swear to God, like they were, they were out of their minds sometimes on this. I mean, don't get me wrong. It really was the biggest thing that had hit water and was substantially, you know, it, it really pushed some things to the limits for their industry. And, but other things were more traditional, like the machinery space. They had to be economical on that. But it just showed just how much of a disconnect they actually had at certain points of their design process because they were building these four huge ships and they were hoping for a grand battle with them that never came to fruition because just like with World War I, with how much ship design had rapidly progressed, just going from 1912 to 1920, just going to those 
ships coming out before the Washington Retreat canceled them, so much had developed that, and it, it's just mind-boggling to me that they they came up with all these great designs that pushed the envelope, but they they didn't they weren't able to see far ahead, and I don't think it was that they were capable because really no one at the time was just how much the carrier was really going to come on the scene. And they, they did, they, they put a lot of weight into the carriers. Like they, they proved that they were good, but the old school sides and even the carrier sides still felt the battleship was going to be the one to have to carry the battle because they felt the carriers were going to, you know, do some substantial damage. That's what come in and just wipe the floor with them. And that's really what they were hoping for. But because of just how much things changed just from 1940 onward, the Yamato literally came out obsolete the second it hit the water. And I don't think anyone at the time really could see it because we ourselves built the Iowa class still thinking there's a chance we're still going to need these things. And what they end up being is basically a huge anti-air battery. And it's pretty much what Yamato turned itself into. Everything changed. So battleship development up to this point was all around the idea of getting the biggest, best guns and armor so that I can take a beating better than the enemy, take them out, and they get home. But I don't believe that the designers really could foresee just how much would change. They did see far enough ahead that they wanted, they, um, when we were, when Japan was testing their new armor-piercing bombs that they had converted from uh, Nagato's old type. Type 88? No, okay. no, 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 no. It was yeah, it was Type Six, Type Eighty Eight. You're right. They they had three different types that came before, so they converted them into bombs and they ordered in because they knew that their homogeneous armor wasn't as good as certain other nations. They they weren't at all illusion of this. They ordered in some really good homogeneous plates from Germany, and they tested their armor piercing bombs. And they actually the reason why Yamato got such a thick deck at around two hundred millimeters thick, of uh, and a little bit over in areas was that they already had the concept of how to resist armor-piercing bombs. That's also why the upper deck was 40 millimeters thick, to fuse these bombs going through, because they're their own testing. So they had the concept that there were going to be bombers that would hit this, but no one could foresee what was the U.S. was going to do where we were like, just blot out the sun with these planes. And one and rather infamous feature of the Amund class was the torpedo defense system. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah, that was one of those things that they wanted, starting with uh, the gun testing on the Tosa class, they began noticing that diving shells if could literally go right through the entire torpedo defense system and cause substantial flooding, even if the shell didn't detonate. Um, if it did detonate, it would do even better. So what they were looking for is a hybrid system that could resist plunging shell fire, which for the record, the U.S. did this as well, and British looked into this as well, as well uh, just because they feared this. However, the joinery system for the upper and lower belt, I've seen some design concepts. It looks like, have you ever, anyone out there, have you ever seen Japanese wood joinery? Oh, how yeah. Complex it, that's how complex this thing was. It was... This joinery system was designed to be was was very complex. It had to fit in a very specific way. They were cut out. They were reinforced, but the problem was they didn't take in the concept that 
explosives tend to take the least resistant route. So it was going to blow inward and upwards, and all this pressure went right to that joint because where that bend formed, instead of being a, a smooth bend like the older classes had, it was a nice rounded bend, which kind of dissipated the energy a little more over an even space. It had a joint right at that corner, and all the pressure hit it. So this joint took the full force of the blast, and it would just crack and let flooding come through. So right before Yamato and the others were built, they did a full-scale test to test how well it would work, and it failed. They wanted to stop the production of the, of the ships and go back and do reinforcements to correct this. Yamato and Musashi were too far along. Uh, Shinano and the later hulls were going to have a different joinery system. What they were actually planning on doing is outside the joinery was put a smooth outboard plane that would then be joined to the upper and lower belt as an additional joint that would reinforce this whole section. So it would hit this smooth out plane that would push the pressure against both plates, but at a more at a much larger surface area to keep it all from hitting that. Because if you think about it, all the pressure is hitting these two points in that one line, and that much force was just too much to handle. They tested against gunfire, it worked just fine because that flat panel is just taking all the hit on that wide, flat surface area. Same thing with the upper belt. But explosive gas force is going to take the least resistant route and hit right at that corner. And sure enough, Yamato's making a trip. Submarine torpedo hits it. Ships about 6,000 tons of seawater, even though it did not penetrate beyond the bulge system because the joint failed. So uh, they, sh they basically put Yamato in dock and they added some, I think it was like 2,000 metric tons of reinforcement along the entire joint system on the inside instead of the outside like they want to do with the newer ones just because of you actually would have to cut sections in the plate to fit through to set the new joiner system they're doing for the others. Honestly, I have no clue if that new joiner system was done on Shinado. Uh, the only way we'd ever find out is if we were to dive on that wreck and looked at it. To my knowledge, I, I'm not even... Actually, have we ever found Shinano's wreck? Uh, I don't think so. We found Musashi's and Yamato's, but I don't know if we've ever found Shinano's. So... Mm -hmm. But that would be the only way we actually would know because Japan torched so much of the documents out of the Yamato class. Oh, we're actually just recently, uh, Mitsubishi actually recently going through old archives found that they actually had the plans for the, the actual boilers and machinery space that they had built for the Yamato. Oh. So that was like, I think it was like in 2013 they found those. Just out of the blue, they're like, oh, uh, we had these actually. They were just randomly in some archive. I was, yeah, it was just like some old engineer's stuff that they just found him. He just, because the given right of people out there, during the, the construction process, they had a central room. They would bring the blueprints. After they were done, they had to burn these blueprints. That, that's how secretive they were building the ship. But the, the actual engineers inside the factories, like, you know, the design process, like Mitsubishi and some of the others, some of these didn't get destroyed because there were so many copies. It was, Kind of impossible to keep track of all of them, but they did a good job for the most part. I mean, it just is what it is. Uh, is there anything would you uh, you'd like to ask regarding the guns? 
I mean, the thing I could add on the guns was performance-wise, they probably had some of the best dispersion. Japan actually got really good at uh, designing a, a delayed fire system for salvo fire. Uh, the U.S., to quote the naval uh, tech mission in Japan, said it was very complex and complicated, but they had to give credit where credit was due because it was effective. Because uh, they actually got to see the system in Nagato, which was the same system was a little more modified and refined for Yama going to Yamato. But they did give credit where credit was due. They said it did, uh, it was effective. Uh, they didn't have it directly built into the fire trigger. It was built into the turret system itself, but it did work. Besides that, the one thing I, I've, a lot of people give the guns is, yes, they did fire the, the largest uh, shell put to sea uh, uh, and the heaviest for a uh, war vessel. Technically, technically Fury, it was Furious did have a heavier shell, but never saw combat or was in a war. Uh, with that 14, 60 kilo shell. But I, I know a lot of people always want to play the whole who would have won concept <laughs> yeah. of the whole Iowa versus Yamato. And I uh, forgot which YouTube channel did it because I, had, I had spoken to them as well when they're going about, uh, was it the, I think it was the Zukaroff's channel who did it because they spoke to me about it and they asked me, uh, like, so who would have won? I said it would have been a draw. Mm -hmm. I was like, the two vessels would have mission killed each other and gotten out of the area. Yeah. I was like, it would have been basically a one in a thousand. We got a lucky shot and did something the other. But the problem was, is that at that time and period, both ships could do serious damage to each other. And the idea of a one-on-one -on -one just was, okay, the Atlantic was a whole different story, but in the Pacific, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a chance. There was a really, there was a good chance that Admiral Halsey could have had that battle fleet fight had he not gone chasing through that typhoon um, on a wild goose chase because that battle force that hit Tappy 3 was expecting to hit them. There was, that was the only time that they would have probably been able to have that, that, that fight. And there's been a lot of discussion to this day whether or not Yamato, after that straddle, hit White Plains. And the reason why is that the uh, chief of engineering said that they took a hit in the boiler section and it ruptured pipes and shot water all through the area. So there's been a lot of belief that what had happened is one of the diving shields went under the ship and detonated under the keel because it came from underneath the vessel. And then a lot of people are saying, well, does that actually count as a hit because it didn't actually hit the ship, the shell detonated. And some people say, well, technically that does because, I mean, the shrapnel did penetrate the vessel. Mm -hmm. So, but, and the reason why that gets brought up a lot because people go over who had the longest range fire, you know, gunnery hit between Char and Horse and War Spite. And people were, well, didn't your model hit White Plains at so and so range after that second shot straddle and damage reports? And it's just one of those things that you'll never really know. But suppose that, but through actual gun testing, through the actual officers and such who had served on Yamato, they stated its guns and at least its accuracy was better than everyone else in the fleet. Uh, there's been things that just have never been confirmed, uh, supposedly, and I've talked about it too. It's been in sources that supposedly Japanese had, were developing low light optics uh, that Yamato actually had experimental versions of. They had also looked in development of infrared systems uh, through work with Germany, but there was no proof of this. 
we know that uh, Germany had sent Japan uh, through submarines, a lot of blueprints as how they developed their first jet fighter off of the ME-262. And mm -hmm. they also sent Japan some of their new torpedo designs for the submarines. And there's even been some speculation that the, the new or the newest and latest uh, German submarine designs were sent to Japan. Uh, the biggest one that they sent Japan was their new battery designs because Japan going to their submarine fleet, also their batteries overall, they just, they weren't all that good. I mean, Japan actually developed one of the fastest submerged uh, submarines, but it really just didn't have the battery capacity like or, or the efficiency that Germany had developed. But yeah, it's the only other thing I have to discuss on Yamato that it, they did, uh, that hasn't been confirmed, is supposedly, since Musashi was designed to be it was given better staff quarters and fleet staff quarters they gave it a new and unique hydro system oh. it's hydrophones were supposedly german made there's been documents in germany stating that they that japan did order this material but there's been no proof that it got to japan that they installed these newer german hydrophone uh what is it kdg i might be getting that wrong it's been a while since so i've actually looked through german stuff systems and that they were capable of hearing outwards at at the ship of 18 knots on on its uh cruising speed becoming torpedoes at a range of about seven kilometers and the purpose of this was to give an early warning against submarine attack and i believe it had a 30 degree off bow to about 45 degree no, it's not 45 degrees. It's like 30 degrees uh, aft of a listening range or arc of listening. Yamato had one as well, but after they had looked into the hydro systems that were put into the sub chasers and Nagato and some of the others, they had issues, or at least in those vessels, of soundproofing the rooms. So they got a lot of feedback sound, which hampered their... Uh, limited the range of actually hearing some of the stuff in the water because you get machinery vibration stuff like that and they so no one's really certain if musashi had done stuff like that in there and maybe the reason some changes didn't have it just because they were just spamming what they could get out there to deal with the situation but supposedly it had the best hydrophone system in the fleet until it was sank i guess to conclude we can briefly talk about the uh meme boat a150 <laughs> um which to my knowledge the design in concept started out like comically large and then even the japanese went uh, maybe we should actually you know design a ship that will function within our physical reality yeah, it basically was like the H proposals where it was a concept. The original concept was how big would the ship have to be to have these guns? And they were like, that's insane. And then they basically just brought it down to a far more economical sense of a slightly larger Yamato with bigger guns. However, in my own personal opinion, it, it didn't make sense because... And at this time, like Japan had this obsession of having to have the bigger guns and the bigger ship. But the 4,600 guns Yamato had were plenty enough. It just didn't make sense they had to put, and not only that, but they were going to give up three barrels. And 
when it comes to gunnery at long range, barrels really matters. You're throwing out the more shells you throw out, the better chance you have of hitting them. So it to me it was a flawed concept from the beginning, just on that, because the average hit rate was something like two to three percent, even with some of the best optics in radar at the time, because I mean, these ships are maneuvering. You've got time on target, round time on delays. So like some of the range takes like 46 seconds for these shells to get there. In 46 seconds, you can do a hard course change. So you're basically, you're, you're kind of living, I mean, you're, I don't want to say you're living on luck, but you kind of are. Because you can have them dialed in, straddled, and just start throwing shells. And basically you're waiting on one to drift in on target. So giving up three barrels for that is just, it's not a good idea. But I yeah, the whole uh, M150 was just pure comical. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's pretty goofy. I, I know one nifty feature, if I remember right, um, they wanted the turret ring to allow for uh, a changeover to the 46 centimeters if they wanted. So it's almost like kind of at a, an admission that maybe the uh, twenty-inch guns might not work out as well. Yeah, yeah. They it was supposed the, supposed to be the, the the dual turrets, or I'm sorry, two-gun turrets were supposed to be able to basically be swapped out because it was basically they just took the forty-six centimeter turrets, took out those guns, made them slightly larger, and put in bigger guns. But <laughs> but they had to increase the ship's beam and length slightly because of the extra weight that was going to come with this. And not only that, but I actually, someone, one of the forums had asked me about this, and it is true. One of, I think it's whole 797. They were looking at the Type 98 10-centimeter guns. They're like, well, how many of these turrets could we fit on it? And and joking aside, someone was like, so, um, you rolled down 12 turrets. You mean like, how do you model? I was like, no. I mean, literally 12 of these turrets per side, so 24 turrets. <laughs> and he's like, how? And I'm like, I know drugs are illegal in Japan, but I'm starting to really wonder in that period if somebody was on mushrooms. <laughs> like, I really was looking at it. Sure enough, I actually checked deck space. If you really played with it, you can make them fit. But I don't, I do not want to know how they're going to try to do that hoist system for all those turrets. Like, I, I, I don't know how they're going to do it. I, honestly, I think it was just, can it be done? Yes. Awesome. I'm like, y'all yeah, just need to calm down. I think that's a, a perfect note to end this uh, podcast on Japanese Navy uh, capital ship design from, you know, the rest of Japanese war forward to uh, when Imperial Japan ceased to exist. Um, we'll probably actually do a, a follow-up to this podcast um, on more thematic topics, so like stuff like armor and things like that, where we can really drill down on that. But... Um, for now, we will see you next time. Goodbye.